I think it feels good to be a part of something. And, you know, that something has gotten narrower and narrower. We call it tribalism. Like, all right, we, we, we belong to this group. And the more we can juxtapose and um, differentiate ourselves from other groups, the more important we feel, the more meaning we have in our lives and things like that. I'm a big fan of broadening those tribes, you know, broadening the we so that more people can fit within that circle. Eric Smith on Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch. Welcome to another special episode. It's about one of the core themes of Heterodox Academy's 2022 conference, which is coming up weeks from now, the trust crisis in higher education, what it is and how to solve it. Our guests today are Kyle Vitale, HXA's Director of Programs, and Eric Smith, a returning podcast guest currently serving as Associate Professor of Rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. Eric is also the co-founder of Free Black Thought. In our interview, we discuss the roots of the campus trust crisis, the contraction of acceptable discourse in higher education, and HXA's upcoming conference in Denver. Before we chat, we'll listen to a blog post featuring four perspectives from some of our conference speakers on this same topic. Eric Smith, Holden Thorpe, Editor-in-Chief at the Science Family of Journals, Shirley Mullen, President Emerita at Houghton College, and Michael Roth, President of Wesleyan University. The blog post is called On the Crisis of Trust in Higher Education, a pre-conference roundtable, read by Richard Davies. Thank you, Zach. The blog begins with this statement and question. The theme for our conference is Renewing Spaces of Knowledge and Trust. Why have we lost trust in one another and in our educational and knowledge-producing institutions? What does renewal look like? The first answer comes from Eric Smith, Associate Professor of Rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. Regarding reasons why American citizens are losing trust in each other, the growth of tribalism is the easy answer. However, that answer is always more of a description than an explanation. I believe the various tribes in American society are a result of an inability to do two things. One, acknowledge that other groups have a particular concatenation of values, attitudes, and beliefs. And two, recognize that quite often our differences do not stem from a difference in values, attitudes, and beliefs, but difference in how we relate to them. The rhetorician Kenneth Burke in Language and Symbolic Action touched on this when articulating his concept of terministic screens, i.e., the filters through which we see the world. That is, when we look at the world, our relationships to values, attitudes, and beliefs cause us to select some aspects of reality and deflect other aspects. For example, the American flag can represent life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it can represent colonization and systematic racism. Both are fitting descriptions. However, Larry Elder may select the former and deflect the latter, whereas Colin Kaepernick would select the latter and deflect the former. Recognizing, as Burke insists, that we must use terministic screens may assuage anger, hate, 
xenophobia, and other thoughts and feelings that significantly impede dialogue across differences. The second answer is by Shirley Mullen, President Emerita, Houghton College. The conference challenges us to rethink and redo our entire training in the academy. We have been prepared to be a community of skeptics, skilled in interrogation, proficient in seeing through the arguments of our colleagues, comfortable when we are speaking from a position of strength, revered for our capacity to win arguments, seasoned in the sport of intellectual one-upmanship. We know well the rules of this game. It clearly has its rewards. Rebuilding the Academy on Trust would truly be a whole new game. Trust presupposes risk. It asks us to listen more than speak, to inquire what we might be missing, to consider what we need to see more clearly before we treat a comment or a colleague dismissively, to be open to reviewing our comfortable orthodoxies, it requires a posture of vulnerability rather than intimidation. It requires us to add to our quiver of virtues, patience, and humility. It dares us to discover whether an academic community of trust, mutual empowerment, and respectful shared inquiry can inspire the rigor and motivate our efforts as effectively as fear of looking foolish or failing to make the grade. I suspect we will be joyously surprised. May we have the courage to accept the challenge. The third answer is by Holden Thorpe, Editor-in-Chief, Science. Because of the nature of either-or politics, objective information, and particularly quantitative objective information, is no longer persuasive. Motivated reasoning based on ideology wins the day every time. Take masks, for example. The rigorous conclusion is clear. Although masks don't prevent the spread of COVID, they help reduce the spread if you have a surgical mask or better. But if you are in the ideological camp that thinks that masks don't work, then someone getting COVID, even though they wore their mask, is enough evidence to conclude that they don't work at all. And if you were in the ideological camp that wants to do everything to reduce the spread, even if it's inconvenient, then the fact that there is a significant reduction is a validation of the fact that it's worth making everyone wear them. But in science, most things are probabilistic. Masks help. Vaccines help. Neither prevent COVID completely on their own. One side likes to say that if masks and vaccines are not 100% effective, it's useless to use them. And the other side wants to conclude that the trade-off for when it's right to take them off is still a ways off. It's motivated reasoning all the way. The fourth and final answer is from Michael Roth, President, Wesleyan University. Arousing a sense of empowerment in those who feel aggrieved, whether it's because they've felt deplored or marginalized, is a favorite technique of those who want to erode trust in existing institutions. The tendency to find scapegoats for one's misery provides pleasures of righteousness across the political spectrum. 
Critical thinking alone will not turn us from such pleasures. Reason alone never supplants sentiment. We need critical feeling. Practiced emotional alternatives to the satisfactions of outrage. Outrage today is braided together with self-absorption, with the tendency to intensify group identification by finding outsiders one can detest. As teachers, we should be pushing back against this tendency, and many do so regularly. When we help students to appreciate a character in a novel who is not wholly sympathetic, or to admire an argument, even when it runs counter to their own assumptions, we are expanding their emotional registers as well as intellectual ones. When our teaching invites students to occupy identities and ideologies they would never consider in their own curated information networks, we are enhancing their consideration of the power of emotions. Expanding the repertoire of feelings has long been a goal of liberal education. Through history, literature, and the arts, we make connections to worlds of emotion, creativity, and intelligence that take us beyond our own individual identities and our group allegiances. The exercise of critical feeling should make us less susceptible to demagogic manipulation and to the misleading politics of resentment. It should make us more understanding of why other people care about the things they do. And in a political and cultural context that encourages crude parochialism under the guise of group solidarity, helping them to do so through increasing their powers of critical feeling is more important than ever. Richard Davies narrating on the crisis of trust in higher education, a pre-conference roundtable. Now our interview with Eric Smith and Kyle Vitale, the mastermind behind HXA Conference 2022. Eric and Kyle, thank you both so much for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So we're discussing the blog post that included brief comments from a few of our major speakers at the Heterodox Academy annual conference in Denver next month. And uh, one of them is you, Eric. First, tell us more about yourself and a little bit about your background. Well, I am Eric Smith, a uh, associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. I'm also a co-founder of Free Black Thought, which is a website that um, celebrates or at least showcases uh, viewpoint diversity within the Black intelligentsia. Uh, people have this uh, tacit belief that Black people all think alike and have the same exact brains and hearts and, and interests and things like that. Uh, it couldn't be farther from the truth. How did I get here? I became at a young age curious as to why people believed in different things and abided by different things. I was a uh, you know, like very many other people, I uh, I thought that to be an intellectual uh, was to abide by a particular narrative. Uh, and that narrative has everything to do, if, if you're Black, right, that narrative has everything to do typically with uh, uh, leftist politics, uh, with certain ideas about um, what it means to be American, uh, what the obstacles are and things like that. It took me a while to realize that I wasn't thinking. I was abiding, you know, uh, abiding by a particular narrative, right, that, uh, that is uh, made popular. It really hit me lately in the last um, few years when 
this narrative began to trump critical thinking. And I mean critical thinking, not like critical theory. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain the uh, difference there. Uh, critical thinking is what uh, uh, the philosopher Richard Paul calls fair-minded, right? Uh, it's, it's not about what you want. It's about thinking about things, looking at the facts, and coming to a conclusion based on those things. Then there's what he calls sophistic critical thinking, which is researching and thinking insofar as it abides by a particular narrative. Right. A lot of people think they're thinking when they're really thinking sophistically. Right. And when you hear things like critical theory or critical race theory, um, the critical there is really sophistic critical thinking. When you are thinking critically, you're looking around and you're saying, maybe there's something wrong here or there's something off here. Or there's something people are missing. Let me see if I can find it. The critical and critical theory and critical race theory says there's definitely something wrong here. I just have to figure out what it is. And that's a very different thing. You've already concluded that there's something wrong. Now I just have to find it. You know, it's, it's already out there or something like that. Uh, I think that's uh, dangerous uh, for reasons that one can see in the past few years uh, in what many people call the culture war, especially when it comes to race. Uh, thinking that, and this is a, an actual tenet from Robin DiAngelo and her ilk, uh, it's not whether racism happened, it's how it manifested in that situation. So long story short, all this stuff bothers me, and um, I would like to put an end to it. All right, let's uh, turn next now to Kyle Vitale, our Director of Programs at Heterodox Academy. Uh, give us a brief introduction to yourself. So I and my team uh, do a lot of the designing and facilitating of the virtual panels and virtual chats that a lot of our members tap into every month. Uh, we oversee the tools and resources library, so opportunities for, for new materials and new teaching tools and writing tools, and the conference, uh, which we're really excited about uh, coming up in, in Denver in June. And how did you come to be at Heterodox Academy? It kind of all started with Shakespeare. I'm, I'm a humanist. My, my uh, doctoral training is in literature and British literature. So I spent a lot of time traveling and, and uh, reading and exploring Shakespeare. It took me through the PhD. And uh, during that work, I discovered how much I love programming and talking to faculty and really being in a support role and, and helping universities do what they do well, even better. And I remember HXA's founding as a blog, and I really uh, found a lot of support and warmth from the writing in that blog. And as my own trajectory continued, I found myself continuing to have trouble being the fullest version of myself in academy hallways and classrooms. Uh, parts of my identity were permitted and parts were not. And I saw the same in others who were also only permitted to share certain parts of their identities. And I wanted to do something about that. So I hope I'm doing it. <laughs> and I love, I love our team. They, they help me do it every day. What were the hidden identities that you felt you couldn't express? Because maybe many people just think, maybe in terms politically, if that, that was your uh, approach or if there were other things. Sure, sure. Yeah. So for, for myself, it was primarily uh, faith and religion. The other thing, though, is, is this, is this um, the idiosyncratic things, the things that make you you, regardless of your race, class, gender, religion, or, or ideology, personal experiences uh, that, that you've had growing up that, that led you to the work that you do, that lead you to talk a certain way. And 
those were often shared by me or by some of my, 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 my friends and greeted with a kind of uncomfortable, well, isn't that nice? But we're, at, we're, we're doing the serious work of scholarship here. Uh, we're doing the serious work of trying to preserve and uh, develop equity in our campuses and classrooms. And we need to talk about race right now. We need to talk about gender right now. And don't hear me wrong, we do. <laughs> we do need to talk about those things. But it was almost like the stripping away of any of the particularities of who we are in favor of these more um, visible uh, conditions, uh, identities, uh, realities that also matter. But I just want to get us to a place where the fact that I read Othello for the first time in the backseat of my parents' minivan on the way to Ithaca for vacation and that I had a physical reaction to him killing his, his wife, spoiler alert, um, just, just that matters to me. That is a core experience of who I am. Well, I think this is a really good segue into a brief conversation about our conference, which is all about the concept of trust. And Kyle, I want to pivot back to you on this. Can you give us a grounding a little bit more about what the conference in Denver is going to be, why we're having it, and why we're focusing on this idea of trust? On a really functional level, it is, uh, frankly, a party. It's a it's it's the first time in several years that we've held an in-person uh, convention for HXA. It's an opportunity for a whole bunch of people who uh, haven't seen each other since the pandemic, who have met virtually during the pandemic but haven't met in person, to come together and do a couple things. Get energized and empowered to go back to their offices and the classrooms and just keep doing this work as well as we can. Uh, to discover new tools and resources, and to just and to connect with new people and discover discover a community here. So we, we really hope that it is one of the more energetic and friendly gatherings of scholars and and uh, instructors and and friends that people will experience. It's also, however, an opportunity to really underscore the critical issue of our day, and that is how and who do we trust and why. Uh, Every day, it seems, the institutions that traditionally have been places we look to for authority and for guidance and for leading lights are struggling, are uh, undercutting themselves or being undercut. It all depends on the issue. Uh, and there are also tensions in and, out, in and out of higher ed. I mean, within higher ed, the faculty versus administrator uh, uh, dynamic is as alive as ever. And there's also increasing tension between constituents of higher ed, parents, uh, higher ed and K through 12. So we, we are here to talk about what is going on, how can we diagnose it, how can we fix it? And that's two parts. That's how do we repair our relationships? And that's the trust component in order to do our core work, which is continue to pursue truth and knowledge for the betterment of ourselves, society, and of our grasp of reality itself. Yeah, and to Eric, just if you can expand a little bit about what you wrote in the post about what you think is at the root causing uh, kind of a crisis of trust in our institutions and an inability to really communicate with each other. Well, we don't realize that we've been, you know, uh, conditioned to look at the world in a particular way. Right. And we don't realize that other people have been conditioned otherwise. And we're looking at the same things, for example, and we're seeing the same things, but we're focusing on different aspects of that same thing. 
right? Kenneth Burke, uh, the uh, rhetorician, called this terministic screens. We have a particular discourse, a particular ideology that shapes our frame of the world, and we're looking at uh, the world in that way, not realizing that A, is constructed, uh, you know, um, and, and, and B, that other people have constructed things differently. Burke said, uh, we can't get away from this. The best we can do is recognize that we're doing it and work from there. That way, this person isn't crazy. This person just has a different filter, right? And this goes back, I mean, it's not just Burke. I mean, Locke talked about this in an uh, essay concerning human understanding. He, he went as far as to say that, you know, perhaps the biggest issue we have in getting along is the fact that we don't have operational definitions. He didn't use that term, but that's what he was talking about. Basically, we have one word and various definitions uh, to go with that word. And we all assume that the other person has our definition. First and foremost, what we need to do is say, okay, what does this term mean to everybody? Let's, let's make sure we're on the same page about this term so that when I say racism, right, uh, it means discrimination based on race and not something that only white people can do. That's, and that's the issue with a lot of uh, contemporary anti-racism, right? We have this one word and various different definitions. And uh, we have to make sure we're on the same page regarding that before we can move forward. If we're not on the same page, then that should be the conversation. Eric, I, I love your your reference to, to frames. And this was this was part of my experience in, in my, my path over at HXA. And I think a lot of people are experiencing something similar when we talk about equity and diversity and inclusion, because this is one of those exact kinds of topics where, as you say in your blog post, that we relate to values in slightly different ways. I would be among colleagues who were uh, very enthusiastic about DEI in the traditional ways that, that we are seeing it play out. Discussion of microaggressions, implicit bias, uh, that sort of thing. And I would too often, and this is my this is my fault. I would too often get mired in, but the science is it, the science is not complete on implicit bias. There might not be a connection between implicit bias and action. And talking about it might make it worse. And I'd get so mired in that loop and trying to trying to to resolve that issue that I'd forget that. Hold on a minute. We do share a value here. We do share a goal. We all in this room do want to help all of our students have a better experience in the classroom. And we all agree that our underrepresented students might be struggling in this particular area. And our, um, you know, our more privileged students might be struggling in this area. And until I realized, wait a minute, we can back up. I can, I can sort of remove myself from the weeds and get to a slightly higher level and start talking to them about that shared goal. I actually found we could get more work done and and so it was absolutely about that, Eric. It's about recognizing that there are different frames here, but that there might also be undercurrents beneath those frames that we can tap into. And but it, it, that takes time, right? And and it's not always possible. But when it is, it's worth it's worth attempting. Do you feel like in the past few years that it's become harder to recognize that we have different frames, or we're less willing to tolerate different opinions? I think it feels good to be a part of something. And that something has gotten narrower and narrower. We call it tribalism. Like, all right, we, we, we belong to this group. And the more we can juxtapose and um, 
differentiate ourselves from other groups, uh, the more important we feel, the more meaning we have in our lives and things like that. I'm a big fan of broadening those tribes, you know, broadening the we so that more people can fit within that circle. I think what we're trying to do is redefine, you know, what America now is because it's not what it was 10 years ago. And in doing that, various people have different definitions and they are butting heads. But if we can realize that that's what we're all doing, maybe we can collaborate better and, and create a more um, inclusive tribe. Sometimes it's just about listening and asking questions and not trying to push. And sometimes it is about pushing. And I found that the pushing happened best when we were, uh, not, not that we we're talking on general terms that don't matter, but when there was a little bit of distance from any named event that was raising our emotionality and making it just harder because we're human. <laughs> we can only control our emotions so so far. And Eric, your point about who are we as America, I find that that sometimes that topic is a pitfall that is worth not avoiding, but treating very carefully. And sometimes it is exactly the kind of place where we can push with each other and be a little more vulnerable. A main point I make in my latest book is that in order to come together and, you know, do something like create a wider uh, narrative, we have to be self-aware and we have to be able to self-manage our own emotions and expectations first and foremost. We typically skip that that part of it, the, the intrapersonal part of it, right? We, we, and so if we don't do that, then we bring baggage with us to this meeting about, you know, broadening the tribe and that baggage can get in the way. Um, that baggage can make us uh, grab onto a particular screen more tightly than we should, right? And it's over before it begins. So back to our conference theme, which is about the crisis of trust in higher education and the difficulty of producing knowledge as a result of that. And uh, I want to present just a couple arguments I imagine that some people may have when thinking about this theme. And I want to see what you guys think. I think there is a camp, a uh, group of people who might agree that there is a crisis of trust in higher education today, but really it's not the fault of the university itself. And actually it's the fault of a media eco ecosystem, maybe a right-wing media ecosystem that deliberately tries to sow distrust into higher education by focusing on things like CRT or other things. And I'd like you to talk about that, address that, where you agree, where you disagree with that argument. Based on my experience, that's not the case. It's not the media. Uh, and when the media does point out uh, the illiberalism of certain uh, aspects of anti-racism in higher ed, they're not entirely wrong. In fact, they're mostly right as far as my um, uh, assessment uh, is concerned. And I, I have this experience because I, I, you know, I hang out with colleagues, uh, people uh, in my field uh, who are blatantly illiberal and proud of it. I wrote something for FAIR um, a couple of weeks ago about this very thing and um, how there is a leader in the field who basically says, you know, um, black students who want to acquire proficiency in standard English uh, are acting selfishly, they're immature, uh, they're duped, they've been brainwashed by white society. Uh, they're not being conceptually pragmatic or anything like that. No, no, they're, um, they're suffering from some kind of uh, Stockholm syndrome. 
that's absurd, right? That's a ridiculous idea. And that is not, unfortunately, just the opinion of this professor. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's a theme, especially when it comes to social justice, specifically anti-racism uh, in my field and in academia in general, especially uh, the humanities, uh, social sciences. It's not this uh, right-wing media scare tactic. There is something going on. I love higher ed. I always have, always will, but I point the finger squarely at us. Uh, Eric points to personalities and types in higher ed. I also think that I'm not going to call right now for burning it all down, but but I do believe that some shifts in how we incentivize our work in higher ed, what we train for, what we don't train for, doesn't help. I mean, we we send teachers into the classroom with very little practice in how to manage and deal with tough situations, tough occasions. And Way too often when you read the fact patterns of faculty who get canceled, I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming the victim, but I am saying there are ways that those classroom situations could have been handled differently to not end up in the New York Times or the Post. So we have only ourselves to blame for eating what the media does say about us and not being any better for it. Well said. Eric Smith, and Kyle Vitale on Heterodox Out Loud. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and listen to more thought-provoking ideas on Heterodox Out Loud. To hear more from Kyle and Eric, along with Shirley Mullen, Holden Thorpe, Michael Roth, and more than 50 additional speakers, join us at our conference in Denver this June. Get details at heterodoxacademy.org. Thanks to Davies Content for producing this podcast and to Kara Boyer on our communications team. I'm Zach Rausch. Until next time.